I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Um, before I get there, uh, next week we're going to uh, begin the book of the minor prophet Habakkuk, which I'm uh, very excited to do. But I've reflected a lot about these last two years, and I wanted to preach two sermons based upon my reflections, two ideas that I really believe the church needs to hear. So the first, of course, was last week in thinking about our own mortality, our own deaths. These last two years, in my opinion, has exposed how wrong our thinking is when it comes to death or our lack of thinking about death. The other thing that has weighed upon my mind and heart is the very thing that I seek to address here this morning in Ephesians 5, 15 to 17. I think more than ever, Christians, the church, needs wisdom. Wisdom. We need to be wise, discerning Christians. And so let me read this passage, but... Uh, This morning we're looking at verses 15 to 17. We're going to do a deep dive into those three verses. But for the sake of context, I want to begin reading from verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 5. So let's read. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And this is where we're going to focus our attention this morning. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would do just that this morning. That as we hear your word, you would make us wise. That you would give us clarity and understanding. 
so that, Lord, we would walk in a manner worthy of you. Help us to behold your wisdom in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as you can see, the Apostle Paul in chapter 5 is focusing on the Christian's way of life. He's already established the gospel and our salvation in Ephesians 1 to 3, the effects of the gospel. The gospel has redeemed us and the gospel has created a new humanity made up of both Jew and Gentile. He's broken down the hostility between these two groups. That's the focus of Ephesians 1 all the way through to chapter 3. And then in chapters 4 to 6, Paul begins to exhort the believers to live in light of the gospel and the salvation they've received or to live out of the salvation they've received. Christ has saved you through his death and resurrection. The Spirit of God has regenerated you, bringing to your soul the benefits of Christ's saving work. So now live in light of this salvation. That's the way Ephesians is set up. And that's what you have here in Ephesians 5. Paul is exhorting the believers to live as a response to the saving work of God in their lives. As he says in verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children of God. He doesn't say, be imitators of God in order that you would become beloved children of God. He says, no, you are the children of God, therefore imitate God. And walk in love, why? Because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So here in chapter 5, Paul is concerned about how we as Christians walk and live in this world. And in verses 15, verse 15 to 17 builds off of what he has said in the previous verses of chapter 5. So in light of the fact that God's wrath is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in light of the fact that you are now children of light, discerning what is pleasing to, to the Lord, in light of the fact that you're no longer asleep, but that Christ has shone his light upon you, Paul then says in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk that is live not as unwise but as wise making the best use of the time more literally purchasing the time but here's what i want you to see verses 15 to 17 can stand on its own in chapter 5 you could say it's like a sandwich in and of itself that is in verse 15 you have an exhortation or a command. And then in verse 17, you also have another exhortation or command, which we will see is parallel with the exhortation in verse 15. But in between both these exhortations, we're given the grounds the, or the reason for the commands. Not only that, the way Paul structures this section is with both a negative and positive command. So on the one hand, he says, don't do this. And on the other hand, he says, do this. Or don't be this and be this. So look at verse 15. Here's the first exhortation. Look 
Carefully then how you walk, that is how you live. Not as unwise, that's the negative, right? Not as unwise, but as wise. That's the positive command. Making the best use of the time, redeeming the time. I'm not going to focus a whole lot on that phrase, but that's the idea is that you are to redeem the time that God has given you. So the command is, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, negative, but as wise, positive. And then he gives the reason or the grounds for this exhortation. Look at the end of verse 16. Why? Why ought you to look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise? Why ought you be concerned about that? Because the days are evil. Watch how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, redeeming the time for this reason, because you're living in evil days. Now, the exhortation in verse 17 rests upon the same grounds or reasoning of verse 15. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, you see, again, both the negative and positive command, right? The negative is, don't be foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is, is the positive command. But what's the grounds, again, for this, these commands? Well, the therefore is the clue. Therefore connects us back to the previous clause in verse 16. Because the days are evil, therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In other words, the statement, because the days are evil, is the reasoning for both the command in verse 15 and in verse 17. Because the days are evil are at the center of this section. It's the justification for Paul's exhortation. And if you look carefully, you'll see the exhortation in verse 15. Okay, look carefully. It runs parallel with the exhortation in verse 17. The negative command in verse 17, not as unwise runs parallel or is synonymous with the negative command in verse 17. Don't be foolish. What does it mean to be unwise? It means to be foolish. And to be wise in verse 15 runs parallel with the positive command in verse 17. Understand what the will of the Lord is. What does it partly mean to be wise? It means to understand what God's will is. So if I were to summarize what Paul is stating, it would be this. The Christian is called to be wise in his living because the Christian is living in evil times. And here's the ultimate question that I want to ask and answer this morning. Why? Why is it so important in the mind of Paul for the Christian to be wise while living in evil days? Why is wisdom so necessary for the Christian while living in evil days? Which means we're going to need to define, one, what wisdom is, or what does it mean to be wise and not foolish, and then secondly, we're going to need to define what Paul means when he says the days are evil. So first, what does wisdom actually mean? 
Or what does it mean to be wise and not foolish? Wisdom is actually quite difficult to define. But verse 15 and 17 gives us some clues so that we can get a good idea of what wisdom is. In verse 15, Paul begins by saying, look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully then how you walk. And then he adds, not as unwise, but as wise. In other words, to be wise is to be in some sense someone who looks carefully at how they live. The wise person observes her life. She examines how she's living. She seeks to watch her life closely. She's thoughtful with how she lives, how she uses her time, her money, what she says, when she speaks, and when she doesn't speak. She's discerning her life and the situation she's in. She's not just reactionary and passive, but she's intentional and thoughtful and discerning in her living. Listen, it's impossible as a Christian to grow in holiness and sanctification to become more like Jesus by being passive and reactionary. Too many Christians just let things happen to them rather than being thoughtful and developing proper habits that would cause one to live a life that honors Jesus, a wise life. See, Paul's saying here that the wise Christian is a person who opens the eyes of her mind to see and examine how she is living before the Lord and then acts accordingly. The other clue is in verse 17 where Paul says, understand what the will of the Lord is. Remember that verse 15 is parallel with verse verse 17, right? Don't be wise, verse 15. Don't be foolish, verse 17. Be wise, verse 15. Understand what the will of the Lord is, verse 17. So a part of what it means to be wise is to understand God's will, which means in an ultimate sense, an unbeliever in the eyes of God cannot be wise. Now, I want to be clear. There is such a thing as worldly wisdom. Even the Apostle Paul articulates this in his letters. Unbelievers can have a worldly wisdom that in a given situation, they can be discerning and make responsible choices. They are still made in the image of God, and they are still able to reason and think even if Every faculty has been corrupted by the fall. There's still common grace. So in one sense, they can have a worldly wisdom, but they cannot ultimately be wise in the eyes of God because they do not acknowledge God nor understand his will. Think about what Proverbs 9.10 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Which means if you don't fear God, if you don't know God, you do not have even the beginning of wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul articulates that because of God and, and us being in Christ Jesus, Jesus himself has become our wisdom. As he says, and because of him, that is because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
Jesus is the wisdom of God, which means if you don't have Jesus, you don't have wisdom. You see, one of the best things you can do as a Christian is to, of course, read the book of Proverbs, which is all about wisdom or any of the wisdom literature. But another thing you can do is read the Gospels with the intention of observing how wise Jesus is in his dealings with humans, how he teaches, how he responds to people's questions, or how he doesn't respond. The manner in which he speaks to the self-righteous Pharisees in contrast to the needy and broken. He's the personification of wisdom. You could say he is the philosopher of philosophers. Isaiah 11, 1, 2 prophesies about Jesus, and this is what we read. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What defined Jesus' life on earth was he was governed by wisdom. He was a man of wisdom. You see, this is why a 17-year-old young lady who fears the Lord and seeks to understand his will and live according to it can be wiser in the eyes of God than a 50-year-old professor who teaches physics but is an atheist. He might be more intelligent than her, but he isn't wiser. Intelligence doesn't equate wisdom. The scriptures declare that it's the fool who says there is no God. He might be an intelligent fool, yet he's still a fool. So you might be a genius, you might be smarter than everyone in this room, and still be a fool because you do not acknowledge the God who created you. So according to Paul here, To be wise is to be thoughtful about how you're living, to look carefully, and it's to understand the will of God. But it's it's important to ask, what does it mean? What does it mean to understand what the will of the Lord is? I have no doubt that you have often asked, what's God's will in this situation? We can think of God's will through two lenses, okay? His general will revealed in his word, and his particular will, which is worked out in the details of each of our lives. God has made his will known to humanity through his word. He's made it known what he requires of us. He's revealed his moral will and his redemptive will that will culminate in a new heavens and new earth with Jesus Christ as king over the nations. But the particular details of our lives God has not revealed to us. For example, none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. Like, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in our lives. Whether there's sickness before us, a new job offer, a future spouse, trials and suffering, we don't know. God has not explicitly revealed these things. But the more we come to understand God's will in his book, the more we will have principles to navigate the particular details of our lives so that we may be wise in the everyday working out of our lives. Do you see? 
let me illustrate this. Let's say you're coming to Royal York Baptist Church, you're a member here, and you're working a job that allows you to make $85,000 a year. You've grown roots here in Toronto, and, and RYBC has been vital for your spiritual nourishment and, and the spiritual nourishment of your family. But you all of a sudden get a job offer in which you will be making $150,000 a year. It's a major pay raise. But this job will require you to move to an area where there are literally no churches except a united church, which is a heretical church. I mean, you can be an atheist pastor in the united church, okay? So what do you do? What do you do as a Christian? You don't want to leave your church family, but this job is going to allow you to make more money, have a more secure and comfortable life. What do you do? Well, God has not verbally spoken into your specific situation, but he has, in his revealed will, given you principles on how to wisely discern what you should do. So you decide, I need to speak to Pastor Peter because he's a fountain of wisdom with all of his experience. (laughs) And yeah, that's a joke. Um, And you ask me, what should I do in this scenario? What's the will of the Lord? Here's how I would respond to you. Well, Bob, you're all Bobs, okay? Um, I can't declare to you explicitly what the will of God is in this situation. But I can give you some principles that I think will make this clear. We know God expects his people to not neglect the assembly of believers, right, Bob? Yeah. We know the scriptures speak regularly about the importance of being in fellowship with other Christians and to be a part of a local, healthy, gospel-preaching church. And if you take this job, Bob, it would seem that you would not have that. You would not have a church community for you, really, to grow and live out the Christian faith. Now, on the other hand, if you go, you'll make a lot more money. And there's nothing outright sinful with making more money or making lots of money. In fact, if you make more money, you can send more money towards missions. But there is warning in scripture about the deceitfulness of riches. There is warning, Bob, in the scriptures about how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us what is a profit of man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul. And so here's what I would say to you, Bob. In God's economy and in his revealed will... It's very clear he's far more concerned about about your spiritual well-being than he is about your financial security. And because of that, I don't think it would be wise nor God's will for you to take this job simply because you'll make more money. Do you see what I've done for Bob there? I've helped him think through his particular situation through the principles of God's revealed will in his word. Now, if Bob has this job offer and it was in an area with lots of churches and there were lots of healthy gospel preaching churches, I would probably advise him very differently. Or if he was going there with the intentions of planting a church, I would advise him differently. I probably wouldn't say, for example, you should absolutely go, but knowing that he will still have a solid church if he takes the job really gives, I think, a lot more freedom and liberty to do so. Do you see? So that's what it means to understand the will of the Lord. 
We need to immerse ourselves in God's word and understand his principles and his promises and think through our particular situations according to his word. And this, of course, is related to what it means to be wise and not foolish. The foolish man doesn't remotely think about what God values and what his will is. So here's a general basic definition from a Bible dictionary that I think sums up well what I have tried to say here about what it means to be wise. Wisdom is having knowledge of what is true or right, coupled with the ability to make a just judgment or perform a just action. It's to look carefully at one's life and to discern and understand God's will and then to act accordingly. You see, the wise man is not governed fundamentally by his feelings, his base instinct, or his impulses. As Lloyd-Jones states, a wise man is thus not governed by excitement or zeal or enthusiasm or impatience, but always by his knowledge of and his desire to serve and to be governed and controlled by the truth of God as it is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if that's what it means to be wise, then you can see what it means to be foolish. The foolish person rushes into a situation without looking carefully. The foolish person is governed by his impulses and his base instincts. The foolish are always impatient. The foolish person is often governed by zeal without knowledge. You see, zeal is often praised in our culture especially in our Christian culture. But if zeal is not grounded in wisdom, it's one of the most dangerous and destructive things. I was once a part of a church, I would say, that often fell prey to people's zeal. That is, often what determined whether or not someone was a solid Christian was their visible zeal. They were always passionate and excited. Yet many of those people, I can testify, who were visibly zealous, are no longer following the Lord. And here's why. They had a whole lot of zeal, but very little knowledge and wisdom. You see, if you think, oh, Pastor Peter's so godly because he's so passionate in the pulpit, that's just my personality. That has nothing to do with my character. So that's what it means to be wise and not foolish, here in verse 15 to 17. It's discernment, it's looking carefully, it's seeking to understand what God's will is and then to act accordingly. Secondly, we need to ask, what does Paul mean by because the days are evil? Because the days are evil. He wants us as Christians to be wise and not foolish because we're living in evil days. Which means understanding what he means by evil days will help us understand why wisdom is so important in the Christian life. See, one of the things that's so fascinating about this passage is what Paul doesn't say. What he doesn't say. What's the opposite of evil? Good, right? So you would think, logically speaking, that Paul would have said here instead, look carefully then how you walk, not as evil, but as good, because the days are evil. 
Therefore, don't be evil, but do the will of the Lord. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that because the days are evil, be good. Though that is true, you ought to be good. He says, be wise. Be wise. He doesn't say, do the will of the Lord. He says, understand the will of the Lord. Why? Why? Well, I think this exhortation gives us a clue into what the days are evil means. There are clues in the book of Ephesians, and then there are clues in the rest of scriptures that will help us understand what the days are evil means, and why then Paul exhorts us to be wise. So, so jump over two chap- or three chapters to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. This will give us a clue on what the days of evil mean. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, so he's talking to the believers, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now look at this. Following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan. The spirit that is now. Do you see that? That word now? That's present. That's a temporal word. That connects to the days are evil. That spirit is... Satan is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So here's one clue about what it means that the days are evil. The days are evil. The days being evil are defined by Satan being at work in the sons of disobedience now. Now. Okay? Got that? Jump over to Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 18. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 to 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you, Christian, must no longer walk as the pagan Gentiles do. And look at this. In the vanity or futility of their minds. There's the minds. Look at this. Verse 18. They are darkened in their what? Behavior? Understanding. Understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of what? The ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So their hardness of heart has produced ignorance and darkness in their thinking, vanity in their minds. So here's the second clue. Evil has a way of darkening the minds of people so that they can't understand. Evil, put it, put it plainly, makes people stupid. And ignorant. So the days of evil are on the one hand, Satan is working on the sons of disobedience. He's reigning over them. And on the other hand, the days of evil means that people are darkened in their thinking. Which helps us see a little bit more why Paul exhorts us to be wise and not foolish in light of the days of evil, right? Because if you're not careful as a Christian, you can become foolish and ignorant and have your mind darkened by these evil days. Now jump over to Ephesians 6.10. Ephesians 6.10. This is a famous passage of the whole armor of God. But I'm always amazed at the first thing that we're to put on is the armor of God. Look at this. So verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? 
the schemes of the devil. There's the devil again. And what is he doing? He's scheming. He's scheming. That means you need wisdom. You need understanding. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over what? This present. Remember? Now, present, evil days. This present darkness. The evil days are defined by present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the what? Evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. And then what's the first thing he tells you to put on? Stand therefore having fastened on what? The belts of truth. Not the belt of obedience. Not the belt of action. But truth. You could say the belt of wisdom. One last passage, and I don't want you to turn there. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. This is going to help us give a little more clarity. Paul says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Look at this. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has done what? Blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5, 16, that the days are evil, therefore be wise, this is what I think he means by the days are evil. He's speaking about the present age that is under the domain of the evil demonic powers. People do evil things, but evil also has a blinding effect upon the minds of people. It darkens their thinking and understanding. Evil makes people foolish. And this is why I think Paul exhorts us to not simply do good, but to be wise because the days are evil. It's not enough to simply do good. You need to know how to do good. You see, if you're not careful, discerning, wise as a Christian, then this evil age and the demonic powers have the capacity to make you foolish and unwise as a Christian, which will ultimately lead you to sin and even the destruction of your own soul. That's why Paul exhorts us to look carefully, to be wise and not foolish, to understand God's will, because this evil age can darken your thinking and lead you astray and destroy your soul. You know what this tells me? It tells me just how important wisdom is in the Christian life. Without it, Satan and evil can have its way with you. See, there's a reason why the book of Proverbs speaks of wisdom as the most important thing that you could have. Proverbs 8, 10 to 11. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. This is why the Apostle Paul prays in Colossians 1, 9 to 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. 
We need spiritual wisdom, understanding the knowledge of God's will so that you and I would be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, these past two years, in my opinion, has revealed to me just how important we as Christians need wisdom. Here's how I want to end off this morning. I want to look at a few areas in our complex world today where we especially need wisdom as Christians. Every generation of Christians has different challenges and different threats. And so what I want to do is address some of those challenges that I think we as Christians have not thought upon enough and have not asked God for wisdom in. And these areas are not inherently sinful or evil, which is why they're so dangerous. Because we might not see how these things, though they're not inherently sinful, they may, due to our lack of wisdom, destroy or damage our souls. These things have the potential to damage or destroy our souls if we don't know how to relate to these things with a spirit of wisdom. This is a real pastoral concern of mine. I have fundamental concern about things that have the potential to destroy or damage your soul, not your body. My primary duty calling as a pastor is to care for the souls of those God has entrusted to my care. That is what I'm going to be held accountable for, and I often feel like I fall short regularly. My primary concern is that your heart and soul would be in such a state that you would be ready to meet your God. See, I have lots of concerns about things in our world and our society, but my ultimate concern is for the souls that have been entrusted to my care. So I'm going to be very honest this morning because I love my church family. I hope you hear my pastoral heart for you this morning as I address some of the areas where we as Christians have not been as wise as we ought to have been. One area in which we need wisdom is in our relationship to the internet. The internet has allowed for so many good things, but there's also a dark side to the internet, which I don't think we as Christians reflect upon enough. The internet has allowed us to have more information at our fingertips than ever before in human history. And because of this, there are some incredible benefits to this. But there are also some real dangers, and I've seen some of these dangers play out over the last two years. What am I talking about? Well, the internet has allowed people to think they know more than they actually do. The internet has allowed people, Christians as well, to have their own echo chambers, where they can find anything on the internet that supports their already held positions. The internet has caused people to believe anything they read regarding current events so long as it supports their already believed narrative. And I have seen this often even with Christians. If all you ever read is internet sources that support your views, understand this. That is not wisdom. It is foolish. Here are some important questions for you to think about when you engage with the internet, especially with current events. How do you know? How do you know what you're reading on the internet 
is actually a reliable source. How do you know? What are, the, what are the categories by which you discern what you are reading on the internet is actually reliable? Is it because it's liberal or conservative? You see, if you determine something to be reliable and trustworthy simply because it affirms the narrative you believe, then I think you're acting foolishly. Not only that, anything you read on the internet, especially speaking to current events, should always be read with a level of criticism, skepticism, and even doubt. You see, it concerns concerns me when I see Christians have so much conviction on a topic in which all the knowledge they have about that topic comes from the internet. It concerns me when I see Christians have stronger convictions about current events that they've read about on the internet than they do in regards to God's truth revealed in the scriptures, or at least they seem more passionate about it. Over these last two years, I have read a ton of articles in relation to COVID, and I have opinions on the matter. But if you ask me, Peter, are you certain about those opinions? I would say to you, absolutely not. Because everything I've read has come from sources in which I don't know the trustworthiness of the individual. I don't know their motives. See, I have no doubt that I have been deceived and misled several times over the past two years. And if you don't think you have been, you're deceiving yourself. And the reason I believe this to be so dangerous to Christians is because it can cause Christians to have their minds dominated, governed by things that in light of eternity don't have a whole lot of ton of significance. It can cause Christians to think they are far more knowledgeable than they actually are on a topic. You could read a thousand articles for why COVID vaccines are reliable, and you could read a thousand for why they're not, and you're still not an expert on that topic. We need wisdom when it comes to the internet. Secondly, we need wisdom as Christians when it comes to our use of something connected to the internet, our social media platforms. No generation before this has had this kind of platform to engage with so many people at one time. See, I do believe there is a way to use social media wisely, but sadly, quite often, social media is toxic and Christians add to this toxicity. To see how Christians engage with each other on social media is beyond disturbing at times. And we can all fall prey to it. I fell prey to it just a few weeks ago. And I had to message someone privately and apologize because I felt like I allowed my anger to get the best of me. See, I try as a Christian not to use my social media as a place for debate and argument. I try to use it primarily to provide good resources for people to read. But listen, if you're always on social media arguing with people over theological issues or political issues, I want to ask you this question. Have you become godlier for it? Has the person you're debating become godlier for it? Is your joy in the Lord all the more because you've made your point on the internet? 
Why do we feel the need to always try to correct people's folly when often in our attempts to do so, we too become foolish? Or why do we feel the need to argue with someone on the internet from England rather than reaching our neighbors who live across the street with the gospel? Some of us may need to get off social media because we can't seem to control ourselves. Or some of us need wisdom to think through how to use our social media better. James 3, 17 to 18 describes what wisdom from above looks like. And I would ask you this. Does this describe the way you conduct yourself on social media? But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm convinced that social media has the potential to be just as dangerous to one's soul as sexual immorality or greed does. Because social media can fan into flame the sins of divisiveness and quarreling and pride. And if you think those sins are small, you're deeply mistaken. There are other areas that I think we need a lot of wisdom in, and I don't have time to cover them all, but I just want to touch on a few. I think we parents need a lot of wisdom in our current context. There's a lot of nonsense out out there in regards to parenting. And I cannot tell you how important it is to be immersed in God's word as a parent for the sake of your children. When my parents were raising me, they didn't have to be concerned that the mainstream media and children's shows would be promoting that I could be a girl simply because I felt like it. Parents of young children, hear me out. I'm a parent of a young child. One of the wisest things you can do is ask other parents, older parents, about your own parenting. Ask them for counsel. Say, what are some areas that you've seen that I could grow in as a parent? Be humble enough to receive what they might have to say. Also, we need to think more wisely about our use of technology in general. Most of us never think about the ramifications of certain technologies in our everyday lives. The only question we usually ask is, will this make me more efficient? Will it make my life easier? I think we ought to learn from the Amish to a certain degree. People think they're anti-technology, but they're actually not. They use technology, but they intentionally avoid technology that would weaken families and diminish communities. When they have a meal, they talk. Go to a restaurant today and just observe what people do when they sit around a meal. Everyone is on their cell phone. See, I think they're on to something, even if I may disagree with their extreme response. But we need wisdom. The last thing I want to address is politics. And I want to be wise with how I say this. If someone had said to me 10 years ago, that generally politics would become the greatest danger to the soul of the Christian man or woman, I would have said that's crazy. It's just politics. There are way greater threats, like sexual immorality and many other things. But if someone said to me today that politics has become the greatest danger to the soul of a Christian, I would probably say, yeah. If it's not the greatest, it's one of the greatest dangers. Hear me out. As citizens of Canada, 
We have a responsibility to be political, to vote, to be aware to a certain level of what's happening in our nation. And I want to encourage you to do so. You should be aware that our government is seeking to remove the charitable status of pregnancy care centers. And you ought to call your MP, you ought to, you ought to use your citizenship and make your voice known. I want us as Christians to be politically engaged. But I want to say this. Some of us as Christians justify our political idolatry with the words, I'm just informed. I believe one of Satan's tactics is to deceive Christians by elevating politics in the heart of the Christian to such a degree that politics begins to dominate the mind and the heart and it begins to produce in him or her a zeal for politics that politics was never to have. It allows Satan to devote the mind of the Christian to the temporal at the expense of the eternal. See, if politics consumes you, if it makes you angry as a person, and yet you continue to consume it, I would suggest to you, you're not living wisely. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's not moments to be angry in light of politics. I was quite angry with our prime minister and the rhetoric that he was using a few weeks ago. But when your overall demeanor and spirit is anger, I think you're living foolishly. Satan can lead the soul astray by sexual perversion, by materialism and wealth, and he can also lead the soul astray by politics. See, here's what we need to understand. Is that the things we are most passionate about in life, can become actually the most dangerous things in our lives if we're not wise. Let me give you an example. I I know a pastor who um, was a pastor of a a young man who was in his uh, early 20s. And this young man was a a godly young man. He he, uh, served the Lord. People loved him. But he loved sports. I, I promise it's not me that I'm talking about. He loved sports. And for some reason, when he would get on the field or on the rink or on the basketball court... He would become toxic. He would fight all the time. And my friend, who's a pastor, finally said to him, you need to quit playing sports until you get this anger under wraps because you are a horrible witness for Jesus while you play sports. And this young man could have dismissed it. He could have said, it's just sports. That's what we often do. But he heard his words. And he quit sports until he figured out his anger. A few weeks ago, I was playing hockey with my team. I've been a part of a team for two years now. And um, we were losing. And I was frustrated. And uh, I was getting hacked a lot, as I often do when I play. And um, the refs weren't calling it. So there was about five minutes left. And we were losing 2-1. And... I made a move on the defender and deked out the goalie and last minute a player came and hacked my arm and the ref didn't call it. And I let my anger get the best of me and I took my stick and cross-checked the guy in the chest. <laughs> Wasn't my godliest moment. Um, I got kicked out of the game with five minutes left and I had to go mope in the dressing room. Um, but you know what's interesting? After the game, one of my teammates, they know I'm a pastor, they know I'm a Christian, um, He said to me, so he's seen me play with him for two years. He said to me, now I know you can get angry. And you know what it made made me realize? 
is my teammates are watching me. They're watching me because they know I'm a pastor and I'm a Christian. And they're examining whether or not I live up to what I believe. I apologized to my team when they came in and I said, guys, I'm sorry, I let, I let my ego get the best of me and I wasn't able to help you down the end. And of course, these guys are characters. So they're like, oh, we love what you did. And I said, no, no, I, was, yeah, I let my ego get the best of me. But here's the point. The world is watching us. You might not think your neighbors are watching you. You might not think your coworkers are watching you. You might not think your friends are watching you, but they are. And if they see Christians fighting and bickering over politics, it will damage our gospel witness to the world. It has damaged our gospel witness. Now, some of you may be saying, Peter, how do I actually grow in wisdom then? Well, let me give you three ideas really quickly. This is not sufficient, but it's a place to start. The first is this, and this is going back to the basics. Pray for it. Pray for it. James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Every time I meet with the leadership team once a month on Thursday night and we pray at the beginning, I always ask that God would guide us and lead us and give us wisdom as we think about what it means to follow the Lord here at Royal York. Ask God for wisdom. The wisdom that we need comes from above. Therefore, we need to seek God for it and hear this. He is infinite in wisdom. He has lots to give. Secondly, immerse yourself in God's word. There's no shortcut to becoming holy and sanctified. And there's no shortcut to becoming wise. But the more one commits himself, herself, to meditating upon the scriptures, the more one has the potential to grow in wisdom. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17 says this, Paul speaking to young Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned, have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Through faith in Jesus Christ, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Immerse yourself in the scriptures. Thirdly, intentionally be around wise people and be willing to receive Advice. That also means avoid foolish people. It's way easier to pull someone off of a chair than to pull someone up onto a chair. If you're around fools, you will become foolish. Intentionally be around wise people and willing to receive advice. In the book of Proverbs, one of the defining markers of a wise person is that they listen to counsel, whereas the fool does not receive counsel or correction. Proverbs eleven fourteen: Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs twelve fifteen: The way of a fool is right in his own wise, but a wise man listens to advice. Pray 
meditate on God's word and surround yourself with wise counselors and fix your eyes on Jesus, who is wisdom itself, and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we simply ask that you would make us wise as individuals and as a church, and that you would lead us and guide us no matter what lays before us in the days ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.